Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. So we are at the end of our walk through Genesis 1 through 4. Today, we are going to be working through Genesis 4 and seeing the continued fallout. Um, The bad news of sin begins in chapter 3, and we've talked about already some of just the consequences of sin. But one of the sad things that we're going to see about sin is that it passes through generations. And uh, not in a... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Imputed way. Yeah, it's not just automatically handed down, but once children are born into a sinful environment, things tend to get worse. Um, Now, that's not going to be the only bad news. There's going to be some good news in here as well, and ultimately some foreshadows of Jesus coming to reverse all of this. However, uh, the story is going to get worse before it gets better, and so Genesis 4 is going to give us kind of the next step into uh, the the following generation after Adam and Eve uh, have the first children. Yeah, and so chapter 4 is going to begin with Adam and Eve listening to the commandment of the Lord to be fruitful and to multiply. So we'll read these first eight verses here. Uh, This is Genesis 4, 1 through 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So Adam and Eve, um, the end of chapter 3, have just been exiled from Eden and are now living with the consequences in a broken world. And this is the first record of them having children. Um, Adam uh, knows Eve, his wife. It's a metaphor for them coming together in marriage. And she conceives and bears Cain. And she gives the Lord credit for this. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so this is a, an exciting time, right? This is the first child born that we know of. And uh, she bears again uh, his brother Abel. So he's the younger brother. And again, this, this is just such a fast forward through the lives of these men. We know very little about, really, their whole life. But we do know their professions, or what they did um, as kind of their, I guess, livelihood. And I wouldn't even call it a job necessarily at this point because there's not really civilization as we know it. Yeah, it's kind of cool to think about how they got into that. Like, oh, man, I just really like the fruit and I like being you know, with the plants. And then you know, one is like, well, I kind of like tending to sheep. Um, or tending to, to these different flocks. It's really cool to think about that. Yeah, so Abel uh, is a keeper of, the, of sheep. 
and Cain is a worker of the ground. Now, I will say, um, you know, we've talked about working the ground several times already, that that was originally a blessing, mm-hmm. but then with, this, with sin and the ground was cursed in Genesis chapter 3, and even at the very end of chapter 3, um, in verse 23, they were sent out of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so there are kind of some ominous connections to the curse when it talks about Cain being a worker of the ground. We know that that's a, a sweaty job because mm-hmm. of the curses. Now, of course, uh, same thing with uh, keep being a keeper of sheep. I'm assuming there are tough things about that as well. I don't think there's anything inherently bad. The rest of the Bible story will bear out there's a lot of good people who do both of these things. Mm-hmm. Shepherds, but also farmers. Um, that's not inherently sinful line of work, obviously. Yeah, so in, in verse 3, um, it says, It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. It's really interesting because up until this point, there's been nothing specifically mentioned about God asking for offering or af- asking for a sacrifice. Uh, we'd mentioned last week how there's kind of a, a hidden sacrifice that's mentioned whenever God kills an animal to make covering for uh Adam and Eve, and so there was a sacrifice of sorts there. But this is the first time where you see man going out and taking something to give up or to offer up to God. And so we're learning something about God in this moment, that his relationship with mankind is dependent uh, on them being willing to give things up for them and, and or for him and recognizing their their role in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, it's important to note that Genesis is not recording every single conversation that God had with them. Obviously, there's been some kind of instruction given that they know this is what God wants. But I think that the key here in in this story is looking at the description of the offerings, not so much the content of the offerings, but the quality of them. It says that in verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, whereas in verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So, again, you have to read a little bit between the lines to see this, but Abel brings the very best of what he had, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And it doesn't give the same kind of quality to Cain's offering. He just brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And we know from later in the Bible story that God wants the best. Now, I'm assuming that he's communicated something to them about that. I think so. And because he will very clearly communicate it to Israel later on that you have to bring the firstborn of your flock. It has to be unblemished, a male, a year old, you know, all of these things that they can't just give God their leftovers. And if you skip to the other end of the Old Testament in Malachi, when they're offering God the blind and the lame and the sick, he won't take it. He's like, I don't, I just close the doors. I don't want your sacrifices if you're just giving me the leftovers. And so I suspect that's kind of what we're dealing with here is that Abel has a tender heart, has listened to the Lord carefully, and is bringing an acceptable sacrifice. Cain does not have a tender heart. He has a hard heart. He does the religious lip service of bringing an offering, but he has not really listened. And so he brings whatever. You know, He brings him an offering of the fruit of the ground. Um, but I do think the text shows us there's a difference in the quality of their offerings. And that 
is reflected in the Lord's acceptance and rejection of their offerings. Yes, and like Stephen said, you can also see, as the text puts it, that God is looking at the individual as well. At the end of verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. God is able to see what is in these two men as they bring forward this offering. And something we'll talk about later, but in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it says, by faith Abel offered up the sacrifice. And uh, it's contrasted with Cain having not done so. And so Abel is trusting God. He, there is a, uh, something in him that Cain does not have. And Cain recognizes that. And verse 5, it says, Cain, uh, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell, which I think we can understand. Um, I, I can sympathize with that. When you've offered something up to God and, and God does not like that, if your creator is unhappy with you, that's going to make you unsettled. And it's going to make you angry. Your countenance falls. What does the ESV say there? Does his, it say your his, face His fell? face fell, yeah. yeah. So just like he's uh, surly, he's frustrated, he's in a bad mood, yeah. <laughs> to put it bluntly. And when we're out of step with the Creator, there is going to be some frustration there. But what I love about Genesis 4, it's very similar to Genesis 3. But God will come to him and say in verse 7, or in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Just like when he accosts Eve and Adam, he starts with questions. He's trying to get them to think through their actions and really getting Cain to think through his actions before he does anything. And the first question is, is why are you angry? Really think this through, Cain. You're upset not because of something that I did. It's not, not something God did. You're upset because of something you did. And we really need to start there a lot of times. We have a tendency to blame someone else, or in Cain's case, blame God. Well, I'm angry because you, God, won't accept me. Well, have you looked inwardly? Why is your face fallen? Why are you being so mad? And then in verse 7, if you do well, will not your face or your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God very clearly indicates to Cain here that he has a choice to make whenever it comes to sin. And that needs to be understood. Stephen kind of touched on this just real briefly earlier, that as we look at the offspring of Adam and Eve, sin has been introduced into the world, but there is not some kind of inherited sin here, that Cain was doomed to fail because of what Adam and Eve did. No, Cain was given a deliberate choice, mm -hmm. and the way God reasons with him makes you understand that. Yeah, I think it's a really important point to see here because, again, the consequences of sin undoubtedly are going to follow through the rest of the human race. We're still dealing with the consequences of sin, but the guilt of sin is something separate. And Cain is not somehow born guilty of Adam and Eve's sin any more than Abel is born guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. These are two boys who've grown up and have learned something of good and evil because of their parents' decisions, but they are left to their choice. And so the Lord says Cain is perfectly capable of making the right decision here. He chooses not to. But it, the, the fact that God's given us free will is really a remarkable thing in Scripture, yep. that he does not force us to do wrong, and he does not force us to do right. He allows us to do that. So, and again, same exact thing with Adam and Eve. Here's the rule. Here's everything you need to know. Now it's your choice whether or not to do that. And we can be tempted. 
And so I do appreciate, like you pointed out, God takes initiative and comes to Cain to try to keep him from sinning. But he does not prevent him from sinning. Yes. He does not force him or, uh, you know, take away his free will. But he does say, hey, listen, you need to think about this. You can do right. This doesn't have to mess things up. Yeah. You, you can repent and do better. And God gives him the opportunity to do that. Now, I think it is really important to notice that Cain had kind of two options here. Either he could himself do better or he could try to pull someone else down. Mm-hmm. And he unfortunately chooses the latter, but that's just sums up a lot of sin right there is we can either choose to do better ourselves or tear other people down. I also want to reflect a little bit on that first question God will ask in verse 7. If you do well, will not your face be lifted up? That there is a, a direct relationship to our obedience that really speaks to our happiness. When you obey and do what's right, there is happiness there. There is a, a sense of I've done what's right, and I am in a right relationship with my father, and so his face will be lifted up. But instead, Cain makes the choice to kill Abel. And like Stephen is emphasizing, he is just taking away the competition. You know, if this is the one that was accepted, well, he can't be accepted if he's dead. And it's just really interesting, too, to think through what their concept of death would have been at that point. Someone brought that up to me a while ago, and I was—I felt so silly. I'd never thought about that before, but, like, nothing had really, like, died yet? I mean, other than animals. But what what was Cain thinking was going to happen once he took Abel's life uh, is really interesting to think through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really is interesting. There's a lot of questions that aren't answered. Maybe God had communicated with them some, and maybe they just thought, well, just like the animal died, then... I will take this human life as yep. well. We don't. We just don't know. But Cain, it says, uh, he spoke to Abel, his brother, in verse 8. I don't know what kind of conversation that was. Um, mm. If he was telling him about uh, his conversation with the Lord or what. Yeah, so the New American Standard reflects that. It says Cain told Abel, his brother. Oh, okay. Mine yeah. says Cain spoke to um, yeah. ESV. Um, but when they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. doesn't say how he did it, but he's given into the temptation. He knew the temptation was there. God had given him all the tools he needed to do what was right. And Cain has committed maybe in some ways a worse sin as far as consequences go than his parents have. His parents ate the, the forbidden fruit, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And now Cain has chosen to sin, but he's chosen to sin in such a way that he has taken the life of his own brother. And there's going to be more consequences. And so what we're going to see in Genesis 4 is just kind of the beginning of a downward spiral. That sin tends to bring more sin. Uh, Unless we repent, unless we trust the Lord and pull out of it, um, things are just going to get worse from here. It's very sobering. And so here on the heels of Cain's choice, I think it's important to ask the question, what are we about to learn about God? Uh, kind of similarly, when we were in chapter 3, thinking about what is going to happen now that man and woman has sinned, that's the same question here. What is God's character like when someone has sinned? And so I, I think uh, that's an important thing to think about as we read this next section. Yeah. So let's pick back up in Genesis 4, verse 9. We'll read down uh, through verse 16. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So you're seeing the parallels between this and chapter 3. As Adam and Eve hide themselves, God will come and say, Where are you? But now he asks Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? God, of course, knows where Abel is. But I think God is really giving Cain a chance here. Just like he did Adam and Eve. Will you confess? Will you openly tell me what you've done? Will you humble yourself and say, this is where he is and this is why? But Cain, he lies. I mean, that's what he does. He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And do you hear the snark in that? Uh, I, I personally do, where it's like, well, is it really my responsibility anyways, God, to be keeping up with him? But, of course, that is not a satisfactory answer for God. Um, so God, in verse 10, will say, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Of course, now that Adam is, is the first one, or excuse me, uh, now that Abel is the first one to ever die, just thinking about, where did he go? Where is he? Now, this is the first human bloodshed to, to have happened. And it's going to be clear uh, whenever they get off the ark, God will double down on this and say, you should not shed man's blood. And um, obviously, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. Like it's So consistent through the Bible. But here Abel's blood is crying out. And there's a New Testament reference. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, that uh, what is Abel's blood saying to God? It doesn't say in the text, but almost certainly it's the idea of vengeance. Mm -hmm. That, uh, Lord, this was innocent. You know, I, I didn't do anything. He, my brothers killed me. Take vengeance. Justify. Mm -hmm. yep, he's crying way. for justice. And so in Hebrews 12, this is just kind of a passing note in Hebrews 12, but it speaks of Jesus being the mediator of a new covenant and that we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, one of the kind of fascinating things is this is the first bloodshed in Scripture, first human bloodshed, and there's going to be a lot more where that came from. There's going to be a lot more violence, a lot more death that comes with sin. But what's interesting is that the way God chose to justify us was through the bloodshed of his own son. And the blood of Jesus does not cry out like the blood of Abel. It does not cry out for vengeance on us. The blood of Jesus cries out for our pardon, yeah. for our forgiveness, that we can plead, wash me in his blood. That's a really remarkable and backwards thing. And, that, and again, this is going to be one of the other ways that Jesus reverses the curse of sin is that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's actually a hymn uh, called Glory Be to Jesus that sums this up pretty well. Um, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus 
for our pardon cries. Um, a very thoughtful and succinct way of putting that together. And so again, what we're seeing in Genesis 4 is kind of the negative end of the things, of the patterns that are being developed. But what we'll see later is that Jesus is going to reverse these patterns and turn them around. Yep. So in verse 11, God will say, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth, to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember, the ground is cursed in the consequences in chapter 3, and now Cain is cursed from the ground in verse 11 here in chapter 4. It's interesting to see the reversals that keep happening. And uh, it says in verse 12, as a consequence of this, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Stephen, is the idea there just simply that nothing will grow for Cain as he tries to yield crops from the ground or something like that? It seems to be in addition to the curses of Genesis 3. It's, it's hard to distinguish exactly what the development is here because, of course, the ground has already been cursed. Um, he's also going to be further banished because they've been banished from Eden. And so there's kind of a double extension of the curses here. One of the curses was the ground is not going to, you know, uh, it's going to bear thorns and thistles. You're going to eat from it in the sweat of your face. Um, and then you have to leave Eden. You cannot be in the paradise of God anymore. And the same thing for Cain. Um, you, both of those things are intensified, maybe. Um, again, hard to say exactly. To the degree where it says he's going to be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. My understanding of that has always been that he's kind of going to be relying on other people or needing to, to find sustenance and things that are already around. And so that's why in verse 13 he cries out that his Cain says, my punishment is too great to bear. You've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from the fa- uh, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and wandering on this earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Like, what am I going to be able to do for myself now? And unfortunately, that, that's what a lot of people do in the face of consequences of sin, is instead of humbling themselves further, they just cry out to God that you're an unfair God, you have no right to do this and end up making things worse for themselves. Um, we, we have to trust God. And even that means being willing to accept the consequences he gives out for sin. Yeah. It's amazing to me that I don't think we've really seen much remorse from Cain for what he did. He did not confess. God had to confront him with it. And now he is crying out because of the greatness of his punishment. And yet we still see the Lord showing him some mercy in this real sense, saying, no, listen, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on them, that, that God does not want this to continue to spiral out into more and more violence and say, yeah, if someone kills you, good riddance. He says, no, like there's, there's more vengeance for the one who takes vengeance on Cain, takes justice into their own hands. God has already passed judgment on Cain. And any human who thinks that they need to add to that punishment by killing him. Nope, there's vengeance for that. And so it's kind of interesting to see how the Lord wants to see justice done, but he does not want to see humanity just take vengeance into their own hands. That's right. And rampantly kill who they think is worthy of death. Uh, Now again, later in the Bible, we will see capital punishment. We will see um, that there are times where judges will render a a ruling and that human life is taken in a judicial context that's approved by God. But that doesn't seem to be what Cain is worried about here. Cain is worried about someone just finding him and killing him on their own. 
And that's, the Lord says, no, that's not what I want. And so there's this mark put on Cain to protect him, to for some extent, from further judgment after God's already yeah. rendered his judgment. And so Cain is thrown out from the presence of God in verse 16, drove, driven out and goes to settle in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. Um, just remember that as this is being penned, Moses is writing all these things down. These would have been places that they would have been familiar with to know where it is. By the way, the, the name Nod means wandering. Yeah. <laughs> so he is uh, sent to a place of wandering. And this is going to be a Bible theme of exile, that when humans rebel against God, often the punishment is exile. Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. Uh, Cain is exiled from wherever they were after Eden, and he ends up in the land of Nod. And it's also the beginning of a biblical pattern of the east, um, east of Eden. He's driven further east, and sometimes east is going to become associated with just bad things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see some more of that here in just a minute. Yeah. So let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 17 through 24. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, then Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zelah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. As for Zila, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The downward spiral continues with the descendants of Cain. Um, we have a little uh, genealogy. I guess this is really the first genealogy in the Bible, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yep. Um, the descendants of Cain. And again, we don't have time frames of their life given, like we're going to see in some of the later uh, genealogies of how many years they lived before having children, how old they were when they died. But here... Um, the, the standout in this genealogy is Lamech. Uh, Lamech is the first person now to take two wives. So we're continuing to see further deviance from God's good plan in Eden. Now people are killing each other, and now people are taking multiple wives. Now, we won't go down this whole rabbit trail, but later in the Bible story, there will be a time where God tolerates that. But from the very first instance of multiple wives in the Bible, it is not, not a good thing. No, no bueno. And so he has these two wives, Ada and Zillah, um, and he is going to talk to them and basically sing this little song. I don't know exactly. It's a poetry. Um, but uh, he talks to his two wives and sounds a little bit like he's bragging. Uh, it's hard to get the tone exactly, but he is telling them about how he killed a man, perhaps specifically a young man. Um, and it seems like he has one-upped this guy. This young man wounded him and struck him. And in response to just the wound, he has now killed this other man. So now we have, again, the increase in violence. 
And he, at the end of this, says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, you think Cain got his vengeance or whatever. Wait till you see what Lamech is doing. Is that kind of the idea, kind of a one-upping of the vengeance? I think that may be the idea, is that whatever Cain did and the consequences of that, well, now I'm way worse than my great-great-whatever-grandfather Cain. And so one of the things that I think is really fascinating about this is the, the numbers that they use here, sevenfold and then 77-fold, especially 77-fold doesn't come up a whole lot of times in the Bible, but it does come up in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think this is pretty fascinating. In Matthew chapter 18, when Peter is talking to Jesus um, about forgiveness and is asking how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And in Matthew 18, 24, or 22, rather, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you uh, seven times, but 77 times. And so, again, you've got the Peter suggests, hey, up to seven times? And then Jesus says, no, 77 times, or 70 times seven, depending on your translation. Either way, it's multiplied. And in both instances, I think you have the multiplication. Um, Just like Abel's blood was crying out for vengeance, and then God says seven times vengeance, and Lamech says 77 times vengeance. Well, the blood of Jesus cries out for pardon. Peter says, well, seven times and then Jesus says, no, 77 times, or 70 times 7. That's how much you forgive your brother if he f- sins against you. And so you just see how symmetrical that is, um, that when Jesus teaches about forgiveness, it seems like he may well be using language from Cain and Abel, and Lamech specifically, that now, no, Jesus is reversing the effects of sin. He's reversing the compounding vengeance that comes with bloodshed and violence. And now he's saying, no, you forgive to the extent that people have been violent and multiplied it. You now multiply forgiveness and you keep forgiving your brother from the heart. And of course, this is followed immediately by the parable that illustrates how much God has first forgiven us. And that motivates us to forgive our brother from our heart. So what we're learning is that even as early as Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, we're seeing these glimpses of Jesus and seeing the kind of power he'll bring and also these curse reversals that Stephen's been talking about. It really is beautiful. And you'll continue to see that as you go through the book of Genesis. Yeah, and now we're skipping ahead to the good news. I mean, Genesis 4 is a tough chapter because, again, it's setting up the rest of the Bible story. And it's going to be one where violence and oppression and bloodshed increase and multiply on the earth. And again, we're going to see these, the tale of two seeds weaving its way through that story, that the seed of the serpent, which is now in a sense kind of active through Cain, is getting worse and worse. But the seed of the woman is going to continue and ultimately going to bring the reversal of the curses um, that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Yep. So we can go ahead and read this last uh, few verses here. Yeah, and so speaking of the other seed, um, Genesis 4, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, a, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So... 
here we have some really important things that need to be talked mm -hmm. about um, because this is the continuing of the genealogy of Adam, which ultimately is going to lead to Jesus Christ. Uh, Seth is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus all the way over in Luke, the third chapter. And so Seth is this uh, replacement might not be the right word, but he is this uh, appointment, my translation says, in the place of Abel because Cain had killed him. And so the Lord blesses Adam and especially Eve with another child here. And so uh, Seth um, is also called Enosh here. And then men begin to call upon the name of Yahweh. And you start to see from kind of here on, we're skipping far ahead, but people really starting to appreciate this relationship with the Lord. And the Genesis text will zero in on people who are are striving for this relationship with God and calling on his name. People like Noah, people like Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. And so this is a real turning point at this point in the book of Genesis. Right. And so at the time of Seth's son, Enosh, yeah, I there's saw, this sorry, beginning yeah, of... Son, oh, yeah. Uh, the beginning of... All right, people are still seeking God. It's not all bad news. So Genesis 4 ends on this note of hope that the seed of the woman, God has provided another seed for her. Because you think about it. I mean, like, you've got two sons. One of them has killed the other one. And he's just continued in rebellion. But now we kind of back up and say, well, there was another son that the Lord gave. And again, he promised to the woman, your seed... You know, this is what's going to happen. I guess it was technically he was talking to the serpent at the time, but said, um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is providing for the promises that he made to Eve. And it's not that, oh, that's okay. Abel's just replaced. No, it's a, he's dead. But the Lord is now giving me, has appointed for me another offspring so that the promise can continue. So there's hope in the darkness because the world is going to keep being a very dark place and it's going to keep getting dark in chapter five and then we're going to get to the flood in chapter six one of the darkest uh, chapters six seven and eight will be the flood and we're not going to cover all of that in detail on this podcast but it's just helpful to see that in the darkness and as even the darkness gets darker god is providing glimmers of hope the seed of the woman is coming and he is preserving that seed through these generations. That even with, although the Lamex of the world are taking their vengeance, that he is bringing the one who will reverse all these consequences. Yep. And so this will conclude this season of HBG Bible Talks. Uh, we hope this has been helpful for everybody. We specifically wanted to do this to hope to whet your appetite for what the solution to all this is, as Stephen was just discussing. And so keep reading through the book of Genesis and I definitely encourage you if this is the first time you've kind of listened to any of our seasons to go from here to season one and listen through the gospel of Mark and see how Jesus truly fulfills all these things that we've been talking about. Uh, Lord willing next week we are going to begin a new season and we're fast forwarding a lot of time into the New Testament and we're going to do the book of Philippians a little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi so Lord willing we'll take a look at that next week. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study the Bible with us or you have Bible questions, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.